0: We are in the final verses of chapter 19. Jesus has died, and John tells us that through his death, Jesus atoned for the sins of his people as a new and better Passover. Further, John wants us to see that through his death, Jesus completed Scripture. He established his church. He conquered sin, death, and Satan. He handed over the Holy Spirit in anticipation of the giving of the Spirit in Mass that would come 50 days later on Pentecost. With his death, we see the heart of God on full display. So if you, if you want to see God's love in action, who he really is, look no further than to the cross. It's like what John Stott wrote. He said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself and puts himself where only man deserves to be. As the Old Testament repeatedly demonstrates, only this God whose character is steadfast loving kindness and who had totally committed himself to his creation, would do this. As Paul argues in Romans 5, no human does this. And even if a human did do this, it wouldn't count for much of anything. So think about it. I would gladly, without hesitation, give my life for my wife and sons. I would do that for my friends or any of you in this church. But for a good man who was a stranger to me, what about for someone I dislike? Or someone I know that hates me? Would I give my life then? Well, even then, what would my life really do for that other person? I mean, my death would be putting off, it would be forestalling the inevitable. Well, our God gave the life of his son. Not merely so that even his enemies might survive for a little bit longer, but so that they might be reconciled to him and have life forever as his family. That's what's on view with the cross. Well, this morning, we pick it up with chapter 19, verse 38, and we see the immediate effects of Jesus' death. Let me read for us. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. They laid Jesus there. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me go to him in prayer for us. Heavenly Father, I pray your blessings on this time together as we meditate and think through your word. That this would be good for our hearts, our minds, even our feet as we seek to follow after you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in verse 38, we read that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple of Jesus, that means he followed Jesus but had not made a public profession of it. He kept it secret. Well, we read that he asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was a rich man, and John tells us that he kept his faith a secret out of fear of the Jews. Well, Matthew 27 tells us that he was a respected member of the council that is, the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, as we've been talking about over and over again, were the ruling elites of Jerusalem who had plotted to kill Jesus and politically outmaneuvered Pilate to get Jesus crucified. Now, more than likely, Joseph, as a rich elite, had some standing in Pilate's court. That's why Pilate granted him Jesus' body. So for Joseph to be a disciple of Jesus and a member of the Sanhedrin, would have made him a target and that's a hard tension to live with even so mark 15 43 tells us that joseph was waiting on the kingdom of god to show up which is exactly what john the baptist was preaching about so perhaps joseph had believed john the baptist when he preached repentance in preparation for the coming of the kingdom and and maybe when Upon seeing Jesus, John proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, Joseph saw Jesus for what he was, the Messiah. Though John does not say so, it also makes me think Isaiah 53.9 that says, And they made the servant of the Lord's tomb with the rich, anticipates this very moment. Well, the other man in the scene, Nicodemus, shows up early in the book of John and becomes increasingly more public and his relationship to Jesus as the gospel goes ahead. We first read about him in John 3, where under the cover of night, he seeks out Jesus. Nicodemus showed Jesus tremendous respect and confessed that Jesus must be sent from God because no one could do the signs Jesus was doing unless God was with him. This leads to Jesus' famous teaching that to be his disciple and enter into the kingdom of God, someone must be born again. Nicodemus, of course, did not understand this at all. At this, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And later on, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Those are all, or Both of those are really well-known phrases to Christians. So in other words, Jesus was, was telling Nicodemus that the kingdom of God had shown up in him, Nicodemus well at least initially he wasn't getting it at least not in this this initial interaction with Jesus now part of what I find so fascinating about what Jesus says to Nicodemus is in 314 he says these words and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up Jesus was referring to the event in Numbers 21 where Israel once again, had complained and rebelled against God, and so God sent venomous snakes to attack them, or as as Numbers describes them, fiery snakes. And as you can imagine, people started dying. Well, people started crying out to God, and God told Moses to make a a bronze image of a snake and put it on a pole and lift it up, and anyone who was bitten could look at the snake and live. It's a very strange scene. And I think God sent venomous or fiery serpents to kill his people as a vivid symbol of what choosing life apart from God really is. It's death. It's like how Adam and Eve chose to listen to the word of the serpent over the word of their God and rebelled against him because of it. It's clear, though, that Jesus saw the salvation offered in Numbers 21 as looking forward to and finding it's meaning in him. And at that point in, in John 3, there's no way Nicodemus could understand what on earth Jesus meant by referencing Numbers 21. But when Jesus was crucified, lifted up on the pole, so to speak, I think he got it. In John 7, we see growth from that initial interaction with Jesus in Nicodemus' faith as he actually defends Jesus against the illegal moves made against him by the Sanhedrin. But as he did that, Nicodemus was promptly shouted down. By the time we get to John 19, however, he's fully on board with Jesus. So for both men, Joseph and Nicodemus, this burial scene was a public profession of faith. None of this was done in secret. It was public knowledge where Jesus was buried and what these men had done for him. So by dying, Jesus had made these two men alive. What was formerly secret or hidden or an incomplete, not-quite-yet faith comes to fruitful public faith at his death. As Ritterboss noticed, it wasn't Jesus' miracles that brought about their public response of faith, though clearly those things were foundational to both men. It was his death. It was his death that led to this public profession of faith. You see, God's love precedes our love for him. His kindness leads to faithful response. There is no greater kindness on the part of God than the gift of Jesus in his life, his death, and resurrection. Now, as just a quick literary aside, I think John is contrasting two responses to Jesus' within the Jewish leadership itself. So on the one hand, the Jewish leadership wanted Jesus' legs broken so he would hurry up and die and they could remove him from the cross, having him buried in a mass grave so that they could get on with the business of celebrating the Passover. On the other hand, we have two men of influence and power who are also part of the ruling elite that instead go and request Jesus' body in order to bury him. But not... Uh, just give him a proper Jewish burial but to honor him as king now to riff off of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 it's the difference between those who know to discern the body of Christ and those who don't it's why the question Jesus posed to his disciples in Matthew 16 is the question every human faces who do you say that Jesus is for some He's a stumbling block, an impediment to our lives. And of course, like with the Sanhedrin, this happens among many people who supposedly confess Jesus' name. And it's surprisingly easy to be to claim to be a disciple of Jesus and thoroughly reject him and his teaching. For others, he is the one high and lifted up, offered for our salvation on The account of our sin and rebellion and this this kindness that they see in jesus the rightly discerning his body and blood leads to humble confession well we've already mentioned that this was an extraordinary burial typically the crucified were buried in a mass grave particularly because of how shameful crucifixion was was perceived to be both among the romans and the jews But we read that Jesus was not only treated with tender care as any family would treat a beloved family member. Jesus was buried really as a king. So, for example, in John 12, Mary anoints Jesus' feet with a pound of ointment made of pure nard and wipes his feet clean with her hair. This is the height of, of spiritual devotion being poured out in real, costly, physical, humble devotion. You see, spiritual devotion to God always has real-world consequences. It's never merely something we feel in our hearts and minds. So I would argue as good as worship services can be, and some of them, of course, are, are more um, emotional than others. Like our, our 200th anniversary was awesome. It was incredible, and I, it, I really felt you know, moved in that service. But if you want to see where real spiritual devotion takes place. It's not so much in the emotions of a moment. It's in what we do with our lives outside of those emotions. It's how we live. It's how we serve. It's like what uh, Kevin DeYoung once said at a chapel service at Covenant College to a bunch of young people who are idealistic and ready to go and ready to go change the world. He said, you know, it's great that many of you want to go out and do big things and and go change the world. That's great. You could start by doing things like changing some nobody child's diaper. And that's right. Those sorts of things are the height of spiritual devotion. You see, Mary loved Jesus. She was devoted to him. Remember, to wash someone's feet was a job reserved for the lowest of the low. And Mary took that position and anointed Jesus' feet in anticipation of his death and for the love of him. And the literal aroma of her devotion filled the house. We read in John 12 that the Judas estimated the worth of the jar of ointment to be about 300 denarii, or roughly 300 days of wages for a day laborer. So Judas, like so many social justice warriors today, both on the right and on the left, expressed his self-righteous indignation for what the worth of that jar could have done for the nameless poor. But Mary had the right of it. She served the one right in front of her in costly fashion. Now, in our passage, Nicodemus does the same as Mary and in his wealth, gives roughly 100 times the amount or somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 days of wages, if I've, I've done the math correctly. See, Mary the peasant anointed the coming king in his life. Nicodemus, the wealthy elite, does the same in his death. In his life, Jesus filled the house with a wonderful aroma. In his death, the fragrance erupted from the tomb. As comments, like the immense amount of wine at the Cana wedding, the feeding of the 5,000, or the 153 large fish of, of John 21 after Jesus' resurrection. So also, this mass of spices, a sign of messianic fullness. So these two men apparently prepared Jesus' body themselves. So like Mary, they took a lowly position doing something that was well beneath their rich status. And doing this would have made them ritually unclean and unable to celebrate the Passover. And, well, that's a big deal to serious Jews, and these men were serious Jews. So, for example, if you just compare how Peter in Acts 10 resisted God when he told him to break kosher food laws, you kind of see what's in view here. The point, like with Peter, is that Jesus had made them clean. Jesus through his death had made them clean where every other death would defile a person. And they now can enjoy the new and better Passover because they have been fully atoned. Gardens are important in scripture. And I've I've talked a lot about this over the years. So I won't belabor it here, but... Gardens, mountains, and trees are almost always involved in worship of the triune God. And symbolism begins, you see, when you think about these things with with the Garden of of Eden. It continues through to the tabernacle and the temple and the New Jerusalem of Revelation. They are all versions of the Garden of Eden and intimate worship and communion with God. So that Jesus began his passion in the Garden of Gethsemane and was buried in a garden should point us back to Genesis 2 and 3 and should show us that Jesus is the new Adam who is bringing life to the world. Of course, this is exactly Paul's point in the book of Romans. Now, that this garden was close to the skull of the rock where Jesus was crucified is important symbolically. The place near where the serpent was crushed. It's where the new Adam will overcome death itself through his resurrection. We read that this was a a family tomb given by Nicodemus and and typically, excuse me, by, by Joseph. And typically, a deceased person would have been prepared and wrapped in linen and then placed on a slab. Now, after the body had decomposed, family members would return to collect the bones in an ossuary, that is, a box meant to hold their bones, and the box would have been put on a shelf alongside other previously deceased family members, and the slab would in turn be cleared for the next family member. Gardens are a place of growth and life, and so we see here from a new tomb, which should be the place for the freshly dead, new life for the world would come, where the smell of death and rot should dominate. The fragrance of life is actually in bloom. Where every single one of Israel's kings had died and remained in the grave, and that's just a drumbeat that you could see throughout the Old Testament, this king would be raised to life and bring his people with him. So instead of death and the grave being a literal dead end, God had taken macabre and, and evil things like crosses and tombs and through them has given birth to the kingdom of God and resurrection for his people. In John twelve thirty-two, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The effect of this, as, as seen with Joseph and Nicodemus, It's immediate. It's immediate. Like with the brazen serpent of Numbers 21, Jesus has been lifted up, and casting your eyes on him brings life. No more can the fiery serpent bite and destroy. No more will sin define our nature. No more will death be the end of the story. You know, for us, because of Christ, tombs are a fragrant new beginning. As bittersweet as any funeral is, I, if I'm doing a funeral, and if I can, I will point to that casket. And I will talk straight face about how the hope of the Christian is that that person that person's body that is in the casket right now as we're doing this funeral will be raised from the dead. That is the promise of Christ. And like that beautiful vision of Isaiah 25 that finds its fulfillment in the book of Revelation with the marriage feast of the Lamb, so from this very mountain where Jesus was lifted up, died and was buried and resurrected on the third day, the kingdom comes from this Point. The kingdom comes. As Isaiah writes in Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. See, our king has been high and lifted up, given for us and our salvation. So let us turn. Let us us turn our eyes to him. May our hearts be moved like Mary's, that we devote ourselves to him in response to his love. Like Joseph and, and Nicodemus, may we be willing to risk it all because we know, despite what the world thinks and despite what tombs signify, our king reigns. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words, the Gospel of John. We thank you for passages like Isaiah 25 that anticipate Jesus, that he is that great mountain to which the world flows. He is that great rock from which we have life. We thank you for the grace we have in him. We thank you for the kindness you have showed us in him. We thank you that though we suffer and though we will die, our death is not the end of us because of the first fruits of Christ, raised from the dead, who has promised to do that for us as well. We pray all of these things in his wonderful name. Amen.